Good morning, church. This morning we have uh, the privilege of having two very special people share and preach God's word. Uh, we've been on this series, Radical Hospitality, and uh, the folks that were, you guys that are going out, you got nine o'clock, would you guys say it was a huge blessing to have Liz and Matt this morning? Yes. Yeah. So for those of you that are here, you're in for a, a real treat. Um, before we hear from them, just a couple of things I wanted to share and mention. Number one, um, as I mentioned last week, several from our church family have approached me about the possibility of being involved or helping uh, relief or even donations in Mexico City as well as Puerto Rico. Uh, and then obviously even Houston, if you were to go back. And here's what I know, and I've done some digging and talking. Here's what I want to share with you guys. Number one, I've been told by folks on the ground, that is in Mexico City as well as Puerto Rico, this is not the time for people in America to come and try and help. Um, for those of us that have been in a mission, particularly overseas, I think there's this maybe American sort of tendency to go, we want to go and help, and sometimes we do more harm than good. And so what I've been told by folks on the ground, these are churches and organizations who say, it's going to take a little bit of time for us to get organized so that we could receive folks to come and help. And I've been told that it might be like January or February of next year. Okay? So... I'll continue to keep you guys updated as we continue to talk to these organizations that are on the ground as well as here trying to facilitate best ways to be helpful. Secondly, I've been told by some folks who work with churches that are actually on the ground, both in Puerto Rico as well as Mexico City, specific churches that we could donate to, that we could financially give to. Okay, so these are organizations that you don't have to worry, like, is the money. These are folks that have relationship with folks that we know that will actually make sure that the funds are going to the proper places. And I'll have a list prepared for you to distribute in the upcoming weeks should you want to give generously. Okay? So continue to be mindful of all of those things as you pray. And speaking of prayer, uh, before I have these guys come, we don't do this every time something like this happens, but many of you woke Monday morning to the tragedy in Las Vegas. And I was, of course, disheartened and disappointed that thoughts and prayers, hashtag thoughts and prayers was already trending, but not in a positive way. We live in a culture, and this really breaks my heart, where people will politicize prayers or praying for people and, 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 and the fact that Thoughts and Prayers is trending on Twitter as people sort of mock it because there are politicians who say, well, we, and I'm sure it's not all the politicians and there might be some folks who in the name of Thoughts and Prayers stay inactive. But can I just remind us as God's people that we actually breathe, that prayer works? Can I get an amen? amen. That we don't buy into this cynicism, people go, Thoughts and we see. If you're not a Christian, here's what you need to know. We as people believe that prayer is action, that God moves. And if you're a genuine Christian follower of Jesus, if you pray, you know that part of that prayer is, God, I want to be the answer to that prayer. So don't please walk away going, well, we just pray, we don't do it. No, no, no. We pray so that we can move in action. So this morning, we pray. Three things real quick before I lead us in a time of short, I'm going to read scripture, 
silent prayer, and then I'm going to read scripture again. One, pray for the victims and their families. They'll, their lives will never be the same. I can't imagine, most of us can't imagine, the emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual healing that needs to take place and the number of people that are involved. We are called to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, and to pray for God's healing, whether it be through people or in other ways. We could also pray not just for victims, but this is hard for me, admittedly, for the lawmakers and people who could actually do something. I do that because I'm commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for those in authority. It's not an option for me. So we pray for the lawmakers, people in Congress, the president, people on the ground, that they would be wise, discerning, that they would not vote or they would not enact laws for themselves, but to be people of justice. That they would enact just laws for the common good. Third, we could pray for the churches on the ground in Vegas. It's times like this when churches need to be at the forefront, as many churches have been through hurricane relief, at the forefront of embodying the kingdom value of compassion and love in a physical, tangible way. I can't imagine, again, what it feels like to be a pastor in Vegas right now, trying to pastor their people. But you and I could join Paul when he says in Colossians 4 that the gospel might be proclaimed and that God would open doors for that, that this would be an opportunity for the gospel and word and deed to go forth in Vegas. I'm going to read a short passage from the book of Habakkuk. Then I'll give a couple of minutes for silent prayer as you pray for these three or any other ways that God might lead you. And I'm going to come around and pray a prayer of David in Psalm 13. Pray with me. The prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. How long, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. A cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Let us pray.
prayer of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Amen. I'm uh, delighted this morning to introduce to you Matt and Liz. Matt is an old friend of New Community. And as we've been on this series of what it means to be radically hospitable and to welcome the stranger among us and the radical nature of what that means, I couldn't think of a better people to come and share practically what this looks like in our day and age. So give a warm round of applause as Matt and Liz make their way up here. Come on up, you guys. Matt, for those of you that don't know him, is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. And he is a co-author of two books on theme of immigration. And he's been a prophetic voice in our day. He's written uh, Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis and also the book Welcoming the Stranger, which I love, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. And today he brought a treasured friend who we're going to get to know better uh, today and hopefully beyond Liz. And I'm going to let him introduce Liz to you. I believe that they have a powerful, special word for us this morning. So let's be hospitable and welcoming to Thanks so much, Pastor Peter. Um, I'm going to go ahead and actually introduce Liz. I've been able to be here with you all at New Community a a few times now, and it's been a huge privilege, but I didn't want to say the same thing that for any of you who heard me a few years ago, so I thought I'll bring someone else along. And I couldn't think of anyone better than my colleague and friend Liz. Um, I've probably known Liz for a handful of years now. She moved into an apartment complex where my wife and I were living Um, kind of an intentional Christian community seeking to serve a community that was largely refugees and other immigrants. And as I got to know Liz, um, we had a job open up at World Relief, 
and I, I'm going to say now it was the Holy Spirit. At the time, I just thought it was a good idea. But I thought, you know, I feel like Liz would be so good at this. Um, and so she's in a role now basically mobilizing local churches throughout the Midwestern United States on behalf of the Evangelical Immigration Table. And she can tell you a little bit about what that is. But basically, a big group of Christians trying to figure out how do we help local churches think in biblical ways about this complex topic of immigration and immigration policy. So I'll turn it over to Liz. Thanks so much, Matt. Um, it's a blessing to be with y'all this morning, um, and thank you for the opportunity to be able to share a little bit of my story and how God has uh, used my journey uh, to lead me to this work, which I didn't expect uh, myself to be, uh, being, to be in the space. So my name is Liz Dong, uh, and I am the Midwest Mobilizer for the Evangelical Immigration Table. The EIT, in short, is a uh, broad coalition of several Christian organizations that have come together to address immigration from a biblical perspective. So that includes World Relief, World Vision, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Ethics and Religi Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and several others uh, with an understanding that our immigration system is broken, it is outdated, and how can we work together in a constructive manner, in a bipartisan manner, uh, to really tackle the system that's putting many people, millions of immigrants uh, here in the United States in the shadows. Um, so, and I have been brought into this work uh, very much, I think, as, as a product of the church welcoming the stranger, the church practicing radical hospitality. Uh, so a little bit of my background. I was born in China, in Nanjing, uh, Jiangsu province, for those who you may be familiar. And I came to the States at the age of 10. Uh, so I came as a dependent. My mom had been here for about five years. She was a graduate student at first in Iowa. And then when she was able to land a job in Chicago area and switch from her student visa to her work visa, that's when I was able to come as a dependent. So really by God's grace, we come from non-believing back family background. And as soon as my mom landed in, in Iowa, um, so I was in China at the time, but God just brought Christians into her life. Uh, one through her former English tutor and the other was her school librarian. They didn't know mom, right? And at the time there were not a lot of international students in Iowa. Uh, mom did not believe their religious belief and looked different, talk, spoke different language, but they just welcomed her in, into their church and as well as into their family. So mom would spend breaks and vacations uh, being with them, and they just loved on her and prayed for her. And I, I, I say this, my mom is very strong mind, very strong willed and independent minded. So while she could see the difference that Jesus has made in their lives, um, she was really reluctant to believe in Jesus herself. Um, but they would persist in prayer. And it is absolutely the, the, their prayer and God, God's grace that my mom became a Christian five years later uh, in Chicago. And that was around the time that I came here to join her. So I came uh, at age of 10, didn't speak English, but I was really excited to start life here. Um, kind of just all the things that I've heard here about America and Disney World. And, um, but little did we know that my life would take a very drastic turn uh, just two years later. In 2001, my mom switched jobs, and because she was on a work, an employer-sponsored visa, um, she had to then apply, because of change her work, for a new employer-sponsored visa, work visa. And I, as a dependent, uh, my paperwork was just simply attached to hers. So when our immigration attorney was supposed to make that adjustment in 2001, he completely forgot to attach my paperwork to hers. And because September 11th happened that year, he also missed two important deadlines that put my mom in a very vulnerable place, immigration-wise, and then for me, who came without a social security and having my paperwork completely just kind of slipping through the cracks, 
I lost my status as a 12-year-old and became undocumented, even though we had done nothing to break U.S. immigration law. My mom uh, tried to approach our legislators, uh, tried to approach other immigration attorneys, just thinking that there must have been a way for, for us to reinstate my status. Uh, but short of self-deporting myself, incurring a 10-year ban, and then not be able to re-enter the United States again, because I had already incurred certain days of unlawful presence here in the States, there's no other way. And so um, I was determined that there was a solution, there was a fix, but that never came. So uh, I came to find out my status uh, when I was about to enter high school, uh, closer to the driving age, when I realized that uh, without status, I could not drive, I could not work, and at the time I could not go to college, uh, regardless of how hard I worked in, in high school. Uh, so high school was a, was a dark time, um, just wrestling a lot with my identity, uh, my worth, and just feeling that I technically did not belong to a place that I came to call home. But it was really during this dark time of wrestling with, my, uh, with myself that God showed his love through his church, his people. My church family uh, loved on us, prayed for us, with us, and uh, among the limited uh, number of people that I actually shared my status with because I was so scared to open up, one, I didn't know how people would react. Uh, two, I didn't know, at, at least at the time, I didn't know anyone else who struggled with this, these things and how would people see me, uh, would they you know, label me as illegal and, and see me that way. But I did uh, muster up enough courage to approach uh, my youth pastor. Um, and as soon as he learned about my situation, he became actively involved in learning about this issue and advocating on my behalf. Uh, both speaking up within the church, uh, church walls, where uh, I felt comfortable, where I gained permission, and also in the public sphere. Speaking on this issue publicly, meeting with our legislators to advocate for some sort of long-term solution that will allow people like me who didn't have status to earn our way towards legalization. It was tremendously empowering uh, to have my youth pastor, to have my church leader speak up on my behalf. Um, and our church family, of course, loved on us and pr provided really practical support of giving me rides and, and such. Um, and I really believe that it is the, an answer to their fervent prayer um, that what happened next was I was enrolled in a community college because it was indiscriminate against status. I couldn't go to college at the time. And then two years after community college, God just began to open doors miraculously. Um, I was able to uh, attend Northwestern University on a scholarship, and at the time I had applied to other schools and had been accepted, but they plainly told me to not come because they'll have to report me. Whereas Northwestern, on the other hand, said, we accepted you, we want to help you come, uh, so let's talk, let's, uh, let's figure out this. And through the um, encouragement of a staff member at my community college, uh, I ended up applying for a scholarship. It's this very generous scholarship from a private foundation called Jack Ken Cook Foundation uh, that would supply, uh, would provide me $30,000 uh, founding per year for three years. And this, this generous scholarship only required documentation as required by my transfer institution. Northwestern University didn't end up asking for anything, so this foundation didn't ask for anything. And I had been on FastWeb, and some of you are familiar, those of us who are students, looking at scholarships, even $500,000 scholarship asked for Social Security. So God, it was definitely God who opened that door. 
So I went to uh, NU, graduated in 2011, but still could not work uh, because I didn't have legal status. So I did a lot of odd jobs, uh, babysitting, uh, volunteering, house cleaning. Those are all good jobs, uh, but probably not the best use of a college degree. And I shared this uh, morning as well, and I also come to realize in hindsight how much God used that time as well to root my identity in Him. That it didn't matter where I graduated and didn't matter what job I held. That if I was doing honest work and I was doing it unto His, for His name, for His glory, that He is pleased. Um, so, and then in 2012, uh, under the Obama administration, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA in short, was implemented, uh, which allowed individuals who came into the U.S. as children, uh, so under the age of 16, who either came through the border illegally uh, or had in some way or another lost their status, like is in my case, to apply for a temporary work authorization that lasted for two years and for protected presence from deportation. Uh, because in his eyes, that we were you know, low priority for deportation. We didn't pose a threat for, uh, to our, uh, public safety and national security. So I was able to do that and started working in the private sector uh, doing small business development and marketing. And then I moved, uh, as Matt mentioned, moved to the community um, in the suburbs of Chicago to do uh, ministry and learn about Matt's work, learn about War Relief. And Matt had approached me about potentially working uh, with them. I was very reluctant to, to accept the offer initially. And then um, Matt would come back to me again and ask me to pray about it, to which I could not say no. <laughs> Um, I prayed, I wasn't, I didn't think I was really serious in prayer, uh, but God would just do a complete 360 in me, uh, reminding me that while I didn't have a voice, while I struggled um, living in the shadow, so, so to speak, that there are people like Matt, there are people like my pastor, Pastor Ben, others, including many of you who are sitting here and learning about this issue, who are actively engaged and advocating on my behalf. And then now that I have this temporary protection, it's my time to speak up. I've been given a story by the grace of God, and it's my time to steward well that story. So I joined uh, War Relief with the EIT uh, in 2014, and it's been a tremendous privilege of just being able to work with church leaders, um, Christian communities, to really understand immigration from a biblical perspective, and then to take that knowledge, to take the calling of God, the command of God, and to put that into practice. What does it mean to radically love our immigrant, our refugee neighbors, um, and to advocate on their behalf, even at times uh, um, on legislations and, and policies? Um, so just as an update, since this happened very recently, uh, DACA, uh, I'm a recipient of, was recently canceled uh, under the Trump administration last month, September 5th. Uh, that is putting me along with approximately 800,000 other DACA recipients uh, at a, in a position where uh, we are at risk for, or we're eligible again for deportation um, and then at risk of losing our work um, permit. So as many as 30,000 DACA recipients will be losing their work authorization come March every month from there. So if this is something that maybe God is leading you to respond to, um, you know, I re really encourage you to uh, look into the DREAM Act of 2017. We've been encouraged that there's been some bipartisan legislation that's been floating in Congress. And that would, the DREAM Act, for one, uh, would provide a long-term solution, legislative solution, for DACA recipients or, or dreamers uh, like me. But so that's in short a little bit of my story and the ways that God has been so faithful in, in working um, 
working that out to, to lead me and open my eyes to this biblical justice issue as well, um, something that is far bigger than my own story and that affects so many people. So thank you so much. I'll turn it over to Matt. After having Liz share uh, at the first service, I thought, why didn't I just suggest that she just come and, you know, she could have done all this, but um, she actually has to go do another church event this afternoon, so she keeps busy. Uh, but what I want to do is really look then at what does the Bible say that would inform how we think about this topic of, of hospitality, radical hospitality. Uh, Pastor Peter told me the passage you all have been starting on is Hebrews chapter 13, and you find verse 2, it tells us to do not for, forget to show hospitality to strangers. And I was thinking about that and this idea of radical hospitality, and as I thought about it, I think that actually that's a little bit redundant. Because in our society, hospitality, at least the way the Bible's talking about it, is pretty radical. That's because hospitality in the Bible, as you've heard in past weeks, if you've been here, is not just having your friends over for lunch, which is the way we kind of use the word hospitality. It's also not just an industry, you know, like restaurants and hotels. Hospitality in the, the Greek of the New Testament is philoxenia, literally the love of strangers. And not just the toleration of strangers, you know, we're really big in our society on tolerance. Tolerance, I suppose, is a good place to start. But as Christians, we're called to a lot more than tolerance. Or it's easy enough to try not to offend people, to stay out of their way, to not be actively hostile towards them. But God calls us to a lot more than that. He calls us to love strangers. And that's so countercultural because we live in a society that thinks of strangers as scary people whom we should be suspicious of. I know that I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons with public service announcements about stranger danger. Right? And again, I have children, I get why we send that message to kids. But I think maybe even as adults, maybe sometimes as a society, our reaction to those who are different from us, who are unknown to us, is to see a potential threat. To kind of hunch up our shoulders and avert our eyes and not make eye contact and think, this is a potential threat to me. But while I'm not going to tell you the Bible promises you every stranger is safe, we are commanded in Scripture to practice hospitality, to love strangers. And so what I want to do this morning is just look at a few different themes in the Bible that I think help inform how we do so. The first one is to look at the story of Jesus himself, because Jesus knew how it felt to be a stranger. And there's a couple of different ways that I think that is true. And they both in some ways relate to passages that we tend to read at, at the Christmas season, which is coming up in a few months. Um, the first is in the Gospel of John, the very beginning of John. It's really it's sort of the story of the incarnation, of, the, of Jesus becoming a hu taking on human flesh as a human being. It starts in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on, to, if you skip ahead to verse 9, the true light, he's talking about Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So you think, you know, we deal with like culture shock when we go from one country to another on a vacation or something. Imagine what Jesus went through. He was a celestial migrant going from heaven to earth. But when he got to earth, when he, he got to the world, he was in the world, it says verse 10, and th though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
Jesus gets to this earth that he created before the, at the beginning of time with the Father to these individuals made in his image and they don't recognize him. He's a stranger to them. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Most people rejected him. So there's that sense in which Jesus was himself a stranger. Then another spin on this is in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, it's again what we think of as kind of the Christmas story. And I actually had a very smart observation from my four-year-old daughter, Zipporah, recently. She, she knows this Christmas story really well. She's read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, and so, it, like probably a lot of your families, in my family we've got this little wooden nativity set that we pull out after Thanksgiving time. And last Christmas time, this was Zipporah's favorite toy for the whole month of December. She would just rehearse the Christmas story. She'd put little, the little wooden figurine of Mary onto the donkey and take her to the... the, the the, to Bethlehem, and then there'd be the animals, and the shepherds, and the wise men. But at a certain point, Zippy turned to me and she said, hey, Dad, we're missing a figurine. We don't have a King Herod. We don't have a mean king, actually, is what she said. I thought about that. Do any of you have a King Herod figurine in your nativity set? It's not necessarily our favorite part of the story, right? Like Christmas Eve service, you know, we might have like a Christmas pageant and it usually ends with the wise men bowing down with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh before Jesus in the manger. That might not be quite historically accurate, but it doesn't matter. It's a nice scene. <laughs> and then the, the curtain comes down and we all go home and have a nice Christmas dinner. We don't really want to hear about a genocide of little boys in Bethlehem. That's not really the Christmas Eve spirit, right? But that's part of the story too. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, says when, when the, the Magi, these wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. I can't read that passage, and that's about all that we get in, in the text itself. So we have to then kind of speculate what the journey was like, what the experience was like when they got to Egypt. But I read that, and just that part of the text reminds me so much of so many of the refugees that I've interacted with over the last decade or so. Uh, World Relief, we're one of nine agencies nationally that is, works with the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees. So we pick them up at the airport, the government tells us when they're arriving, and our goal is to have a team from a local church there to welcome them from the first day that they're here and really walk with them through the process of adjusting to life in this country. And so many of them have a story like that of, well, we heard this rumor that this rebel group was coming, and because of our Christian faith or because of our Muslim religion or whatever, or because of our political belief or because of our ethnicity, this group of people was going to come and they were going to kill us. So we had to get up in the middle of the night and there wasn't time to make a plan. There wasn't time to gather up every possession we had. It was, to, we just had to run and find safety. And that's an experience that's shared by um, Jesus himself in his humanity. Jesus was a refugee. Uh, today in our world, there are roughly 21, I'm sorry, 22.5 million refugees, people who have been forced by the threat of persecution to flee from their country. And that doesn't include another 40 million or so who have fled within their country, but aren't technically refugees because they haven't crossed a border. And Jesus can identify very personally with that experience. It's also why it's so heartbreaking to me that in our country, where we have this rich legacy of welcoming refugees, if you go back to 1980, 
Under President Carter, more than 200,000 refugees came to the United States, largely received by local churches. Um, largely, they were Vietnamese refugees fleeing from Southeast Asia at that time. Or through in the Reagan administration, the president who gets under the law gets to set the, the maximum number of refugees, set that at about 140,000. Same in the first Bush administration. It's gone down a little bit in recent years. President Obama set it last year at 110,000. This year, as of last week, uh, our refugee ceiling for the United States for this new year is 45,000. It's actually the lowest in our history, presuming we even get to that maximum. And that's heartbreaking to me because I know that every one of those individuals, regardless of where they're coming from or their faith background or any other qualifier, is a person who's made in the image of God, uh, who is having an experience much like what Jesus went through himself. Then another spin on that Matthew chapter 2 story is actually that if you think about it, Jesus was a, a dreamer. That's the term we use, and it comes from a piece of legislation you heard Liz mention, the DREAM Act, which would basically be a bill in Congress that's been proposed since 2001, but has never actually passed, that would allow people who were brought here as young kids to be able to earn citizenship. And obviously Jesus wasn't brought here to the United States, but he did have that experience of being a foreigner brought by his parents at an age when he was too young to have much of a say in the matter and brought to a foreign country. And we don't know much from the text how he was treated there, but I think it's interesting to speculate was it's very likely that there were people who welcomed them. I hope that was true. It's also quite likely that there was people there in Egypt who didn't want them there. There might have been some people who told Joseph, you know what, we've got enough carpenters in this economy without you taking a job. Or parents who would say, let's keep our kids away from that baby. We don't know what kind of diseases he has. Uh, that's just speculation. But we do know that Jesus can very much identify with those both who are refugees in our world and with these roughly 800,000 people who are dreamers. Now another biblical theme that I think is helpful here is to look at how Jesus interacted with those who were strangers in his society, how he modeled uh, interacting with strangers. Um, and there's at least one group of people who we know were considered strangers at that time, in, in that location in that time. And we find that in, in a text in Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read this passage. Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has none returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? So we know just from that passage that a Samaritan in the mind of a Jewish person like Jesus was a foreigner. But Jesus probably, if he was like the other people in his society, would have had a little bit more to say about how he felt about Samaritans than just that they were foreigners. Because Samaritans and Jewish people didn't get along very well. I, that's maybe lost on us because, you know, we hear the term Samaritan and if anything we associate that with like, oh, isn't there a hospital that's good Samaritan? Like Samaritans, they were good people. That was not how most Jewish people thought about this. Um, that would have been an oxymoron, to be a good Samaritan. 
Um, we know in John chapter 4, for example, it, it tells us, and this was in the words of a Samaritan woman who was confused that Jesus would even speak to her. She says, but Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Or another example of how strong the animosity was, two of Jesus' best disciples at one point suggested to him in Luke chapter 9 that maybe he would like to call down fire on a Samaritan village. And Jesus didn't go along with that. But that was, you know, you think you work with tough people in the church. Um, this was a, some of Jesus' best disciples. Or another example, when some of Jesus' critics are trying to discredit him, they want to insult him, they said, hey, you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan. Like, those were the best two insults they could come up with. Now, Jesus was not demon-possessed. He was also not actually a Samaritan. But those were in the same category of, like, terrible things to be. So that's how most people around Jesus thought about these strangers, these foreigners, these Samaritans. But it's interesting to look at how Jesus talks about Samaritans and how he interacts with Samaritans at every intera interaction. In Luke 17, which we just read, not only does Jesus heal the Samaritan who's got leprosy, he also holds him up as the single example of gratitude among the ten. He recognizes his virtue. Or in John 4, when the Samaritan woman comes and speaks to Jesus, that story ends with Jesus seeing her potential as an evangelist. And she ends up telling her whole village about who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. And because of that Samaritan woman, there were a whole lot more Samaritans believing that Jesus was the Messiah at that point than there probably were Jewish people. Or, of course, the best example of this, and one, the reason we've heard that term Samaritan, is the story of the Good Samaritan which we find in Luke chapter 10, when someone's beat up on the side of the road to Jericho, and Jesus tells a story to illustrate what it means to love our neighbor, and he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. That would have been surprising to his listeners. That's not who they expected to be the hero. And the implication is not only to his listeners, well, you should love even Samaritans, so I suppose that would be true, but that the Samaritan is the model of neighborly love. A third biblical teaching that I think is important, and we find it again from Jesus directly, is that Jesus reminds the insiders that God loves those who are outsiders. And he does so even when it's not popular. I want to read this passage in Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee. Galilee is kind of where he grew up. After he ended up in Egypt, after several years, he comes back and he grows up mostly in Galilee. So Jesus returned to Galilee, homecoming, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. All spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So, I don't know if any of you have ever like, given a talk of any sort. You can usually tell when people are with you or not with you. Like, if they're sitting there like this, they're not with you. But if they're, you know, they're smiling, they're laughing at your jokes, whatever, like, it's like, this is going well. It's going really well for Jesus today. You know, they're saying, look, listen to his gracious words that come from his lips. This guy is phenomenal. Where's he from? And then we're going to jump a few verses later, and um, something very strange happens. Without, with just a few sentences, they are literally trying to throw Jesus off of a cliff. So what is happening in the mind of this audience? What did he possibly say that so upset them? Let's read what he said. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. 
Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, a foreigner. And there were many, Isra- many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And you can kind of hear the mood change. Because what Jesus is saying is, you know, God doesn't just love you. God, even going back to the Old Testament, wasn't just for the Jewish people. That God's love is bigger than that. Nazareth first might have won him a local election, but it wouldn't be fair to the universality of God's love. The love that would send him to the cross to die for people of every country of origin, every race, every nationality. And sometimes that message is going to get you some amens, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes that's not a popular message. Sometimes that's a message, you know, I have not yet had anyone try to throw me off a cliff, thank God. Um, But sometimes it's not what people want to hear. But that is exactly what happened to Jesus. It says, um, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. He, didn't, he, he escaped through that incident, although it was a similar sentiment that did put him on the cross a short time later. I think the challenge here for us is it's, it's easy to talk about God's heart for the world. For people who are not like us, when, when you get the amens, it's harder when people are critical, when people don't want to hear that, when it's your you know, crazy relative on the Facebook wall or around the coffee pot in your place of work or wherever. But our challenge is to, stick, to stand up for what Jesus so clearly teaches in whatever context we're in, that God's love is big. It's not narrow to one country or one group of people. Another biblical teaching that I think is really foundational here is that if we are followers of Jesus, we are strangers ourselves. And that ought to inform how we treat those who we might think of as strangers into our country. Um, One passage that highlights that is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, if you read the whole chapter, is basically like a hall of fame of all the great heroes of the the faith in the Old Testament. It's Abraham, and it just kind of goes through the list. Amazing people. Then it kind of takes this little pause in verse 13 and says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, if we are to be faithful like those heroes of of our faith, we're never going to totally fit in here. As Christians, our citizenship, while we might be citizens of the United States or of any number of other countries, That's a secondary citizenship. Our primary citizenship, our primary allegiance is to God's kingdom. Because Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be grateful for this country. There's lots of blessings to being born in this country or the privilege of naturalizing in this country. But if we get these identities confused, we think they're roughly equal or they're almost the same thing, God and country in one package, that's a really risky position to be in. Because we can forget that our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate loyalty, is not with any nation state, is with God's kingdom. And that's a citizenship that we can't lose, that no human being can take away from you. 
If your primary identity is being an American, it's easy to be afraid when there are people from other places coming in or concerned with national security issues or economics. Do we have enough, do I have enough to spare to share with someone else? But if you're rooted in your identity as a citizen in God's kingdom, no person can take any of those things from you. And frankly, we need our immigrant brothers and sisters to help remind us of what this means. Because most immigrants live in this liminal space in between multiple identities where they never quite fully feel like they fit in. And that's how we're all supposed to feel all the time living on this earth. Because our citizenship, our ultimate identity is based in heaven. We are seeking that better kingdom that God that better city that God is preparing for us. One last biblical theme is that, and this goes back to Hebrews chapter 13, if we finish the passage we started with, the strangers whom we're called to welcome might actually be a blessing, might actually be people whom God has sent to us. It says in Hebrews 13 too, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Some years ago in the neighborhood where my wife and I lived, we'd just gotten married. There's a new family that showed up in the neighborhood. It was actually a single mom, um, three kids, and the mom was eight months pregnant from East Africa. And they came on temporary visitor visas and they were seeking asylum. They were fleeing a really dangerous situation in their country back in Africa. And you know, we got to know them. We realized pretty quickly they didn't really know anyone here. They didn't have a lot of almost anything. There was one bedroom apartment with a bunch of people and no furniture. So we put a message up on Facebook and some people from our church were great. They brought some furniture and helped you know, get them settled, helped the kids get into school. My wife was at the hospital when that baby was born. And um, with time, you know, they did really well. They got their asylum claim granted, which is an answer to prayer in itself. And they were able to, mom was able to get a job. And as time went by, they, they weren't strangers anymore, they were just our friends. And for us at World Relief, that's really the trajectory that we hope is where I was moving towards, from strangers to neighbors to, to family, as I heard Pastor Peter say earlier. And then after about a year, their husband slash father showed up. And it's a long story why he couldn't be there in the first place. But uh, going back to the persecution they were coming from. But I got to be there at O'Hare when he met his daughter for the first time. And I was just like a weepy mess. Like they were holding it together quite well and I'm there in the baggage claim embarrassing everyone. Like what's, what's wrong with this guy? Um, but he became a dear friend as well. And then at a certain point, uh, he and his wife were over at my, my house with my, me and my wife for dinner and they asked us this question. So you guys have been married for a little while. When are you going to have kids? Which by the way, like it's kind of not what you're supposed to ask in the United States. It's not really culturally appropriate, but they're not from here, so we'll forgive that. And the reality is, Diana and I had been hoping and praying to have a baby for more than a year at that point, and it, it hadn't been happening, and we didn't know what was going on, but it was kind of a sensitive topic, and so we shared that. We said we'd love them to pray for us, and they said, yes, I'm, we're going to be praying for you, and then John Vier said, I just have this sense that the Lord's going to bless you with a child in the next year. Well, I smiled, and that was really sweet, but you know what? It's not like we hadn't been praying before. I wasn't going to get my hopes up because of our, you know, interesting neighbor. Uh, but it was only a few months later. We were over their house for dinner this time, and we got to share with them the good news that Diana was expecting. 
And I will never forget the moment where, we, where they understood what we were telling them. You know, English is like their fourth language, so they're, they process things a little bit more slowly, and you could see after like this few second delay, the, their eyes widen. And then they literally fall down, laying prostrate on the ground with all sorts of shouts of Jesus and hallelujahs. It was like a Pentecostal church service in their kitchen. And they went on to tell us they'd been getting up early every Thursday and fasting all day every Thursday and praying that God would bless us with a child. And you can see my daughter Zipporah up there. Again, she's four now, but I have no doubt that she is the answer to their prayers. And to ours, but mostly to theirs because I didn't get up early and fast and pray on Thursdays. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that story and with the challenge to practice radical hospitality. Practice loving strangers. Don't be surprised if a few of them turn out to be angels in disguise. We pray for us. Father, I thank you that you loved each and every one of us from the various places that we come from, that our families come from, enough to send your son, Jesus, to be a stranger on this earth that he created with you. Thank you that he went through the experience of a refugee fleeing persecution. Thank you that he went all the way to the cross because of his love for the world. God, I pray that we would be living with that same love, empowered by your spirit to welcome those who you put into in front of us, to reach out, to advocate for, to stand with those who are vulnerable because they're strangers in our land. I pray this in Jesus' name. Come on and stand on your feet as we sing this song and respond.